So we have been going through this book called Ephesians, which is an epistle. It is an epistle. Everybody say epistle. All right, that's just a fun word to say. It's an epistle, which simply means it is a letter. It is a letter written to a specific audience. And in this case, it is a letter written to a church in a place called Ephesus that the apostle Paul had founded. He had started this church. And what's unique is that everywhere around the world, people are people. Whatever the culture is, people deal with the same issues, the same struggles, the same problems, the same temptations, wherever they are or whenever they are. And so we find as we study these epistles, these letters of Paul in the New Testament and the Bible, they speak to the church in Ephesus, but they also speak to us because humanity is humanity and people are people. He has a lot to say to us, even though it was written almost 2,000 years ago. So today, in order to understand the context of what Paul is writing, we have to go back, do a little bit of time travel, and revisit the events that led to Paul, the author of Ephesians, becoming a believer in Jesus Christ. Many of you know that Paul started out as a zealous Jewish religious leader at the time. He was extremely zealous. He was known for his zeal. And the Jewish religious leaders at the time found Christianity to be a great, great threat to their power structure. They were nervous that Jews were becoming Christians, that it was going to affect their power structure. They were nervous it was going to appear to the Romans like they didn't have control over their people and what they did. So they were emphatically trying to shut down Christianity, and they would go out and actually persecute Christians, beat them up, torture them, throw them in prison, sometimes even kill them. And Paul was one of the participants in this persecution of the Christians. In fact, it says in Scripture that when Stephen, one of the original 12 disciples, was stoned to death, Paul was standing by holding the coats of the men who were stoning him to death, watching him die. This is how Paul started out. He couldn't have started out further away from Jesus than he did. He started out a hater of Jesus and his disciples and their threat to the Jewish power structure. That's where Paul came from. And so one day, Paul, whose name at the time was Saul, was traveling to the city of Damascus for his latest persecution project when Jesus Christ revealed himself to Paul. It's in Acts chapter 26, verse 12. Paul tells the story himself a couple of years later to King Agrippa, King Herod Agrippa II, after he's been arrested by the Romans for essentially being a troublemaker. He's been brought before the king and he recounts the story of coming to know Jesus to King Agrippa. He says, while thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, so they had sent me out on this project, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And some of you know this, but a goad is basically a, a pointy stick that farmers would use when they would have oxen pulling apparatus like a cart or a piece of tilling equipment to till the soil when the oxen would say, eh, I've had enough. They would poke the back of their legs with this pointy stick and say, go, and they'd have to go. And if the oxen didn't like being told to go, they would try and kick back. But if they kicked back, they would just kick the spike further into their leg or into their hoof. And so the saying became, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. In other words, the more you fight, the more you're going to hurt yourself. And this is what Jesus says to Paul. He says, Paul, the more you resist me, the more pain you're going to go through. You need to just stop. It says this in verse 15. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And I can't imagine the fear that must have seized Paul when in a moment he realizes Jesus is real, Jesus is God, Jesus is all-powerful, and he's introduced himself to me as Jesus, whom you are persecuting. That's a bad start to a relationship. That's a really bad start to a relationship. Really bad start. And this is how Paul meets Jesus. And Jesus says, but rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, 
to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen, I'm real and I'm God, and of the things which I will yet reveal to you, the things you're not even ready to understand yet. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles, the non-Jews, to whom I now send you. So this is Jesus saying, I am sending you to the Gentiles. I'm sending you to the non-Jews to be a minister. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is Jesus speaking to Paul. And our story continues. We go back to Acts chapter 9, verse 10. It says, Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight. Just, it's called Straight Street. And inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarshish. So go to Straight Street. Go to the house of Judas. Not the Judas who betrayed Jesus, a different Judas. And ask for Saul of Tarshish. At this point, if Ananias was stupid enough to interrupt God, Ananias would have said, no, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, God. Uh, I, thought, I thought you said Saul of Tarshish for a second there. <laughs> That's a good one. But he doesn't interrupt God. He, uh, he, keeps t- he keeps listening and God keeps talking. God says, for behold, he is praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. So Paul was struck blind when Jesus revealed himself to him. God says, Ananias, go pray for him. And when you pray for him, I'm going to give him back his sight. Now Ananias will diplomatically raise a small point of a concern. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Uh, in case you haven't known God, um, Saul of Tarshish has this reputation for killing people like me. So what's the plan? But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For Ananias, mind blown, mind blown. Saul? Saul? The guy we're hiding from, he, he's the guy you're sending to tell us about you? For Saul, mind blown. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're sending me to the Gentiles to tell them about you, but, but you, only, uh, you only love the Jews. No, I love the Gentiles too. Whoa, whoa. Okay, so this is a big day. Everybody's paradigms are being shattered and completely realigned. Neither party could have seen this coming. Paul stays in Damascus for several days after he's regained his sight, spending some time with some of the disciples of Jesus who lived there. And he must have had a million questions about this Jesus who he had just encountered. And after a few days, Paul goes back to Jerusalem. And soon he has his new calling confirmed and detailed. In Acts twenty-two seventeen, it tells us, Now it happened, this is Paul talking now, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance, So Paul is praying, and the idea is literally he is just gone. He is no longer in the place where he is. His entire spirit, his entire consciousness is now somewhere different, communing communing with the Lord. He says, and I saw him, Jesus, saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Paul's response to Jesus is literally, Jesus, do you have any idea how awesome my testimony is? They all know me as the guy who used to kill all the Christians, and now I'm going to tell them that you love them. This is like a perfect setup. I've got a reputation. This is like the ultimate testimony. I've got like murder covered. I've got torture covered. I got all the boxes checked. This is going to be an amazing testimony. This is going to be on YouTube like right away. So he's excited. He's saying, God, have you, have you seen all the angles we could work on this? God says, Paul, that's not what I'm calling you to. I'm calling you to do something very different. 
What God was doing is he was calling Paul away from his comfort zone. He's saying, Paul, if you do all that, you think you've got it all together. And that's going to be a problem if I'm going to use you. Because I need to take you out of your comfort zone to a place where you realize that all you have is me. All you have is my strength. All you have is my power. Not yours. Not your amazing testimony. That's so impressive. This is what God is doing in the life of Paul. Then he said, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And this is on your outline. Paul is emphatically commissioned, sent to the Gentiles with the message of Jesus. He's commissioned by Jesus Christ himself. And through a series of events, basically for being a political troublemaker, Paul finds himself in jail in Rome. And Paul was unique not only because he wasn't one of the original 12 disciples who lived with Jesus during his time on the earth, but Paul was the only disciple who was a Roman citizen. And during that time, it afforded him certain rights and privileges that non-Roman citizens didn't have. One of them was the right to appeal to Caesar if you were charged with any crime. So if you were anywhere in the Roman Empire and you were charged with a crime by the local authorities like theft, and you did not want to face trial there, you could appeal to Caesar, in which case they would transport you to Rome as a prisoner, and you could make your appeal through the Roman court system in Rome. And so this is what happens is Paul is being called a troublemaker, and he decides, I don't want to be tried here, possibly because it was a hostile environment, but also because Paul had an obsession with having the opportunity to share the gospel with the most influential people in the world. And he had an obsession with wanting to get to Rome and have an audience with the king, to share his story with the king and the most powerful politicians in the world of that time. He had this obsession. So Paul is arrested in Jerusalem. The Jews want to have him tried there. He says, no, I want to go to Rome. This is a bad situation to be tried here, and I want to share that my testimony of Jesus with the political powers that be in Rome. So he's transported as a prisoner to Rome. He's in prison in Rome, and most scholars agree that's where he writes the book of Ephesians. That's where he writes the book of Ephesians. So we're going to pick this up in chapter 3, verse 1. And I have to point this out because we've been having some fun with this. Paul is the enemy of every grammar Nazi that there is. The whole, the whole book of Ephesians, when you read it, you kind of get the sense that he had somebody dic- dictating. He was dictating to somebody who was writing it down. And he probably wrote the whole letter in about five minutes, just in one giant explosion of thought. Because I want to point something out to you for absolutely no theological benefit, just because it's hilarious to me. If you look in chapter 3, where we're going to study today of Ephesians, chapter 3, verse 1, you'll notice it starts with, For this reason, I, and Paul actually never finishes that sentence. After the word I, he takes a 90 degree turn and goes in a completely different direction. It's like he wanted to put a comma in there, share a quick thought and come back to it, and he never comes back to it. He just completely forgets. So those entire first four words uh, don't serve any great grammatical purpose. But I will point out that the reason Paul is referring to is everything that we read about last week in chapter 2. And that is the mystery that's been revealed that the gospel and salvation are now for the Gentiles as well as the Jews, not just the Jews. So when he says, for this reason, that reason he's talking about is everything revealed in chapter 2. Because chapters and verses weren't added to the Bible for hundreds of years after it was written. It was originally just one long flowing letter. So we tend to read a chapter and think, okay, that's a close, now we have a new topic. But especially in the epistles, that's not the case. It's just one flowing letter. So I encourage you, anytime you start a new chapter, go and read the last couple of verses in the chapter that preceded it, because he's probably continuing the same thought most of the time. And that's what's happening here. He says, for this reason, and this is on your outline too, the unification of Jews and Gentiles into one church under the leadership of Jesus Christ. This is the reason he's writing. The unification of Jews and Gentiles into one church under the leadership of Jesus Christ. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. Go ahead in your Bibles if you want to and underline Christ Jesus. He's the prisoner of Christ Jesus. It's interesting because Paul is a prisoner of the Roman Empire, but he doesn't introduce himself that way. He introduces himself as the prisoner 
of Christ Jesus. That's incredibly important because when someone is a prisoner, they've lost the right to do what they want to do and they've lost the right to go where they want to go. Paul is saying that when Jesus came into his life, Jesus became his Lord. In order to be saved, Jesus has to be your Lord and your Savior. And there's many people who want the Savior part of Jesus. Saving me from hell, spending eternity in paradise, deal. The Lord part is where you say, Jesus is now the authority in your life. He's the ruler of your life. He's the king of your life. That's the Lord part of salvation. Paul says, when Jesus Christ came into my life, he became my Lord. And I gladly signed away my rights to do whatever I want, whenever I want, go wherever I want. His will for my life became more important than my own. His will supersedes my own in all things. I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and gladly so. And for some of us, that might make us uncomfortable, that that kind of verbiage. But as we've pointed out before, the phrase, no Lord, is an oxymoron. Because you can't call him Lord and say no at the same time. And so if Jesus is Lord, our only answer is to ever be yes. As soon as we find out that there's something our Lord and Savior desires of us, we are quick to do it. And that's our heart. We won't do it perfectly. But when Jesus is your Lord, the heart is there to do it. And this is something you see in somebody when they get saved. When they're really saved and Jesus Christ has come into their life, everything doesn't change overnight. But what does change is the desire. There's now this desire to be in harmony with God. There's now this desire to do what he wants. There's now this desire to see his will accomplished in your life. That's what changes. So when somebody says, hey, I gave my life to Jesus. Hey, are you doing this? No, that's really not my thing. You have to ask, is is he your Lord? What you see in people is, so what are you going to do about this? The person who's become a believer says, it's really hard. I'm not doing that great at it. But man, I want to do it. Man, I want to see that happen in my life. Man, I want to be there. That desire is there. And that desire can take years before it actually works out. But the desire comes in right away. Paul says, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And that is a phrase that all of us who believe in Christ should be comfortable saying for ourselves, that we are prisoners of Christ Jesus. For our sakes, I am so glad that Paul ended up in prison. And I'll tell you why. Because Paul was go, go, go all the time. Paul was not an R&R kind of guy. He was just going to go. He's like, I'll sleep when I'm dead. That's who Paul was. He was that kind of guy, always going. The only way we would have anything written down from Paul is if he was in prison and forced to stop. He only wrote the epistles because he couldn't go anywhere and he had to do something. So he wrote these letters and thank God he went to prison because now we have them and now we're encouraged today. We're encouraged today. So Paul was in this situation, and I guarantee you, it was intensely frustrating. Paul was thinking, God, if you would just get me out of here, I could be doing so much for you. Paul didn't sit down and think, you know what I'll do? I'll write the Bible. That'll pass the time. He didn't do that. Paul just said, I'll write some letters Maybe they'll read it at the church. Maybe they'll send a letter to some of the other churches so they can read it too. I guarantee Paul never would have dreamed that 2,000 years later we would be here studying the letter that he wrote to a group of people. He could never have even dreamed or imagined that. And what we can take from that is in times when it feels like we're being hindered, when it feels like God just won't remove the barrier that would make us so effective, We have no idea what God is doing in terms of the big picture. And being a prisoner of Christ Jesus means we understand we don't have the right to know the full plan all the time. All we have the right to do is to say, God, am I in your will? And sometimes God says, yes, you're in my will. And that's all we need to know sometimes. He's not always going to tell us, Hang with me because in this many years, this person is going to come here and they're going to meet this person who you're going to talk to in three months. I've never heard a story of God telling anybody anything like that in advance. You only ever get to see it in hindsight. 
And there are things about all of our lives that are going to blow our minds when we get to heaven one day and we see what God did, how God orchestrated things in a way that we could never dream or imagine. So I encourage you, there are things in your life that you may be battling, that you may feel are hindering you. You are praying, you are in God's will, but this thing just won't happen. Just begin to pray, God, let me be in your will. Let me be in your will. Just let me know that I'm in your will and that'll be enough. That'll be enough for me. For some of you, you might be battling addictions and thinking, if I could just be rid of this, everything would be good. I'm saved, so why do I have to spend months and years dealing with the addiction? Why can't I just be delivered right now? Because your addiction today is going to be your ministry tomorrow. God is putting in you empathy. He's putting in you gentleness and understanding so that you can minister to the next person and say, I've been there. I've been there. And let me tell you, God is faithful. God is faithful. He will get you there. You have no idea what God is doing. God was doing great things through Paul in prison. And you know the prisoners that were assigned to Paul to guard him were not getting small talk. They were not talking Olympic games or sports. They weren't doing that. They were hearing the gospel, followed by a little bit of the gospel, and then gospel for dessert. Every day, all day, all the time. I can't imagine anything worse than resisting Jesus and being assigned to guard Paul. Hey, open to hearing the gospel today? You want to sing some songs? Let's sing. Let's sing, everybody. Oh, doesn't he ever shut up, you know? And I find this almost funny because when Paul writes an epistle to the church in Philippi called Philippians, in chapter 4, verse 22, Paul says this. To the church in Philippi, he says, The saints in Caesar's palace, your new brothers in Christ, greet you too. Which is just fantastic. That's just Paul. Oh, hey, yeah, all the guards who've come to know Jesus while I'm here, they say what's up as well. Just wanted to let you know. I love Paul. Can't stop, won't stop. That's Paul. Verse 2 of Ephesians chapter 3, he says, If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you. What Paul is saying here, he's saying, I've been given this special grace, this special mission from God for you to tell you about the grace of God. God has given me a message for you to let you know that God is ready to relate to you through grace. That's what a dispensation is. A dispensation is a way God relates to you. So when Paul says we have the dispensation of grace, he's saying the message I've got for you is that God will now relate to you through grace and that is good good news so we keep going verse 3 how by revelation he jesus made known to me the mystery as i have briefly written already by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of christ paul's just saying i received this this mission this message in a direct revelation from jesus and i've written about that experience in some of my other writings you can go back and watch the previous episodes if you want to know my story is what paul is saying he says which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men so paul's talking about this mystery and this mystery is that god will now relate to us through grace. He says, in other ages, this mystery wasn't known by men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. He's saying this mystery, that salvation has come through Jesus Christ for everyone, it wasn't revealed to people until this time, but it's now been revealed by the Holy Spirit through the apostles and the prophets. This is really important because this answers some of the questions that you have about the Old Testament. If you've ever read the Old Testament and all the prophecies about Jesus, I don't know if you've ever had the thought, how could they not get it? Like, how could they not get it? How did they not have charts up in the synagogue saying he's going to be born in Bethlehem, he's going to do this? I mean, how come nobody was doing like the prophetic TV show kind of thing, you know, every week in the synagogues? But what this verse is saying is it's saying this was a mystery what Jesus was going to do. People were not able to understand it in the Old Testament times. They knew there was a Messiah coming to save them, but they couldn't put it all together because God wasn't revealing the mystery to them yet. But he says now, from the moment when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the mystery was revealed. This explains why even his own disciples, after being with him for two years, still were not connecting the dots 
that he was God. They still weren't connecting the dots. When he raised the dead guy, wasn't that like a really big clue? You know, no, they didn't get it. They didn't get it, except for a few exceptions. But as a general rule, the mystery wasn't revealed. Paul's saying, but now it's been revealed and it's being proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And this is the mystery in verse six, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. It is the greatest news that has ever been proclaimed in the history of the world and that ever will be proclaimed that salvation is now for everybody, for everyone. No one is excluded who desires to come to God. No one. And this marks the beginning of the dispensation of grace that we live in now. Are we going to get into this? This is so fascinating what we're about to talk about. And it's going to change your understanding of the entire Bible from today on, if you've never heard of this. There are eight main dispensations that flow throughout Scripture. And as we've just revealed, when Jesus rose from the dead, it began the dispensation of grace. And we're still in that age right now. And again, a dispensation is just a way that God relates to us. So he now relates to us through grace. But we're going to take a look at eight different ways from the beginning of the world through to the end of the world that flow all the way through Scripture that God relates to us, and they all serve a purpose. And the other seven all reveal one thing, that the only way God can relate to us is through grace. The other seven dispensations reveal that all of man's other theories about happiness don't work. And so let's dive into this because you're going to love this. This is fascinating. Many people believe that, man, if we could just live in harmony with nature, if we could just have functional good families, if we could just have a God that we could see and touch and hear, then, then everything would work. And the eight dispensations disprove this. The first one is the dispensation of innocence. The dispensation of innocence. And it began with the creation of man and it lasts to the fall of man. And here's what it does. The dispensation of innocence disproves the theory that all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of our problems comes from our family line. It disproves the idea that all of our dysfunction comes from our parents, our addictive personalities, our sinful tendencies. It's so easy to say, well, if you knew my parents, you'd understand why I'm so screwed up. Adam and Eve had the perfect start, the literal perfect start. They had no parents. They were born without sin. They were born perfect and sinless. And yet despite that, they still chose to rebel against God. And so the dispensation of innocence tells us it's not all your parents' fault. And I know they contribute to it. I know. I really do. I'm scared of heights because my mom was scared of heights. Okay? But they're not the cause for everything. They're not the cause for everything. And even if you had had the perfect start in the perfect family, if you'd been born without sin, you and I still would have chosen to rebel against God. We still would have done it, just like Adam and Eve. The second dispensation is the dispensation of conscience that lasted around 1,650 years from the fall of man, so Adam and Eve being kicked out of the Garden of Eden, all the way to the flood, Noah's flood, about 1,650 years. And it refers to the theory of moral relativism. And moral relativism is an idea that's becoming very prevalent in our culture. It's simply the idea that says, what's true for you is true for you. What's right for you is right for you. There is no right or wrong. It's all relative to who you are and how you see the world. And there's an increasing psychological and sociological movement that says if we would simply allow everybody to follow their conscience and do what they feel is right, everything would work out because these people are crazy and they believe that we're all inherently good. That if we're all left to our own devices, we will all turn into great people. We'll all care about each other. But that's simply not the case because this is what happens during the days of Noah. The Bible says every person did what was right in their own eyes. And I don't have time to get into this, and I so wish I did because this is one of the most interesting parts of Scripture. One of the things that happens during this time is there is just rampant sexual perversion all over the world to the point 
were fallen angels, some of the angels who were kicked out of heaven when Lucifer rebelled against God were kicked out of heaven. Some of those angels who are able to manifest physically on earth, manifest on the earth, have intercourse with women and produce giants on the earth, which is the race that Goliath comes from. And I know if you're here, you're thinking, that's absolutely crazy. Genesis 6, 1-4, if you want to look it up. Genesis 6, 1-4. I don't have time to get into it, but this is one of the things that happens. There's rampant sexual perversion on the most bizarre scale. And on the whole earth, there's only one man and one family who's even remotely seeking after God, and it's Noah. And this is the result of everybody doing what they feel is right. Just rampant perversion, murder, violence covered the earth, is what the Bible said. And there's only one person left who seeks after God. If he does that again, we'll just say, yes, Lord, speak, your servant is listening, okay? <laughs> so this is the, uh, the dispensation of conscience. It didn't work out. It didn't work out. Next, we go to the dispensation of government, which lasted about 425 years from the flood to the Tower of Babel. And during this time, God established the first governmental order based on capital punishment. Capital punishment. If you murder someone, you get murdered too. That was the death penalty created by God. So he creates the first government structure to unite man. But mankind doesn't unite to pursue God. Instead, mankind unites to elevate themselves as gods. And the Tower of Babel becomes this giant project where they say, let's build a tower to the heavens. Why? Because we can, and we're awesome. So let's build a tower to show how awesome we are. People say they might have been the first rappers, but I don't know, we'll just, we'll just see what goes on with that. So, so, but that was sort of the culture. This was the ultimate in bling status symbol. Let's just build a really big tower. Why? Just be, because. Look at the tower. It's huge. So this is sort of the mentality they had, and they united to reject God. That whole process ends with God saying, fine, you don't want anything to do with me? I'll scatter you across the earth. God strikes the whole earth with different languages. They can't communicate. They abandon the project. falls apart. People scatter all over the earth. So when we have the perfect government, when we have the perfect political structure, God in charge of everything. All it does is unite people against God. That's all it did. Because there's people who say, well, what we really need is we just need the right government. We need the right ruler. We need more socialism. We need communism. No, we need straight up capitalism. If we could have this system, then the world would work. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Mankind just gets together to reject God. Then we move into the dispensation of promise, which lasted approximately 430 years from Abraham to the Exodus. That's the Israelites coming out of slavery in Egypt. And and what this is, these are people who say, all I need for my life is the right vision. I just need the right purpose. If somebody could point me in the right direction, then everything would go together. There are a lot of people who are in college and school all the way into their 30s because they're they're changing majors every two or three years, just looking for the one thing they're supposed to be doing with their lives. Epidemic of suicide in young adults outside of high school has less to do with bullying once they're outside of high school and just a sense of hopelessness that it does not matter whether I live or die. I have no purpose. I bring nothing to the table. And so there's people who say, man, if I just had the right vision, then everything would work out. I I wouldn't need God. The world would be happy if everybody was doing the right thing uh, in their own special area of strength. So God gives Abraham and the Israeli people a promise. You guys are gonna be a mighty nation. I'm gonna take you into the promised land. That's what we're gonna do. Not really interested in hearing it from God. How does the story end? It ends with them in slavery in Egypt. That's how the story ends. They had a vision, they had a promise, and they forgot it. They didn't hold on to it. They didn't pursue it. And they ended up slaves in Egypt. That doesn't work either. Then we had the dispensation of the law. And this lasted approximately 1,500 years from the Exodus when God brought them out of Egypt all the way up to the cross. And the dispensation of the law proves that even if you had a perfect set of laws, the world would still fall apart. I still meet people all the time who just say, listen, You know, if I was allowed to write the laws, then everybody would just be in order and everything would work out. 
the law which God gave and wrote with his own fingers on stone. The law was perfect. It was practical. It took into account social interaction. It took into account compassion. It took into account fairness, justice, everything. The law was perfect as far as laws go. What's the problem with a perfect law? Man can't keep it. Man can't keep it. That's the problem. And that's all that the law reveals. And then we move into the age that we're in now. The dispensation of grace. And this is where God says, I'm I'm not going to relate to you through your innocence because that didn't work. I'm not going to relate to you through your conscience because your conscience leads you away from me. I'm not going to relate to you through a government structure. I'm not going to relate to you through a set of laws. I'm not going to relate to you through a vision or a promise. I'm going to relate to you through grace. That's how I'm going to relate to you, through Jesus. Because this is the one way I can relate to you that is able to withstand your imperfections. Because this dispensation is not even based on you. It's based on Jesus. It's based on his perfection. It's based on his sacrifice. It's based on what he has done. And all you have to say is, yeah, I'll take that one. Let's do that one. I'll go with the grace dispensation. Thank you very much. And this is the dispensation of grace. We've got a few more, but I want to let you know, this is so important. Write it on your outline. We relate to God through Jesus. We relate to God through Jesus. If you're glad that we're living in the dispensation of grace, let me hear you say amen so I know you're with me. I am glad that we relate to God through the dispensation of grace. And so when you read your Bible, when you read the Old Testament, hang on to your outline. It's going to help you understand a lot of what is going on. It helps you understand a lot of what is going on. There's a social experiment that has been put on display in the scriptures that spans thousands of years that takes man's best theories of happiness and harmony and peace on the earth and absolutely obliterates them. It says there's only one way to peace. It's through Jesus. It's through grace. That's the only way. But the age of grace, the dispensation of grace, is not going to last forever on the earth. We move on to the dispensation of tribulation. The dispensation of tribulation. That would be an epic title for some type of of, uh, artistic work. I'm just saying. The dispensation of tribulation. Or a Christian metal band. You're welcome. Free tip for anybody who wants to take it. We are the dispensation of tribulation. That's fantastic. (laughs) I'd form a band just to have that as my name. So uh, the dispensation of the tribulation is spoken of in Revelation 6 through 19. And this is the seven-year period of unbelievable difficulty and torment on the earth. For those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, we are raptured before this happens. We're taken to be with Jesus Christ. But then there's this seven-year period of just judgment poured out on the earth. You know, there's people who say, if, if I could see God, if I could, if I could touch God, you know, then, then I would believe. And this is what Scripture tells us, that during this seven-year period of tribulation, angels will visibly fly across the sky, okay? Hailstones will hit the earth. Continents will split in two. The supernatural will be visible. And yet, here's what you find. You find that in that account, the people who are on the earth don't cry out to the rock of ages, save us. They cry out to the rocks, fall on us, instead of crying out to God. So even when God's wrath is on full display, people are not repentant. They simply just keep saying, oh, get us away from this. So this proves that even if God could be seen, he could be heard physically and tangibly, until you're at the place where you recognize your need for a savior, you have no need for Jesus, even if he's standing right there. That's the truth. That's the dispensation of tribulation. After that comes the dispensation of righteousness, the final dispensation. After the seven-year period, we actually come back with Jesus to the earth. So we've been raptured, we're with him. Us and every believer who's ever lived come back with Jesus to earth in our glorified bodies. So we're in tip-top shape, even while there's some regular human people 
here on the earth, which is pretty awesome. So we all come back looking amazing, and we rule on the earth with Jesus for a thousand years, and this is Jesus setting up his kingdom on earth. This is Jesus putting an end to war, putting an end to suffering. This is when the lion lies down next to the lamb. This is the thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth with us. But here's the amazing thing. What happens at the end of this millennial kingdom? There are still people who will reject God. After living under the leadership of the perfect ruler for a thousand years, there are still people who will say, no thanks, I'd rather do my own thing. Still, and if you're wondering about your end times timeline, after that comes Armageddon and the big final showdown. So we have these eight dispensations. And understanding them will will keep you from being confused about what's going on in different times in Scripture. But what we can tell is that the only way God can relate to us is through grace. Every other theory has been tried. And not just tried once or twice, but tried for years and been disproven. The only way for mankind to know peace and happiness and wholeness is through grace through the dispensation of grace, through Jesus Christ. And so this is the age, this is the dispensation that Paul has been called to herald. This is the message he's been given. In verse seven in Ephesians three, Paul is speaking about the gospel. And he says of the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace God gave to me by the effective working of his power. This is a small but incredibly important point about ministry. Paul, the guy who, who by modern standards would have had an office full of diplomas. He was a brilliant scholar. He would have had all kinds of certificates on his wall. Paul, the guy who's just brilliant, tells us how to become a minister, how he became a minister. He says, according to the gift, the gift of grace given to me by the effective working of his power. That's how someone is called into real ministry. That's how it really happens. They receive a giftedness from God that equips them for the task. That's the first step. I was a worship pastor for years and occasionally you would have somebody show up and say, listen, God's called me to lead worship. And you would hear them sing. And you'd say, no, he hasn't. You know, and the reason is the people God calls are the people God gifts. Sometimes it was just that easy, just that black and white. It's like, I'm not a prophet, but I need to speak into your life for a minute. Because when God calls somebody, God gifts somebody in the area that they're called. So the whole process of being called to be a minister of Christ begins by being given a specific gift that applies to the task and the mission that you've been given. So Paul says he got his giftedness from the Lord. That giftedness is given by the grace of God, not because the person deserves it. Not because the person deserves it. And this is important to understand because we have a tendency in Christian culture to take people who are really gifted in one area and associate that with their relationship with Jesus. In other words, they're a really good singer they must really be walking with the Lord. They do a really good Bible study. They must really be walking with the Lord. The Bible actually says the gifts of God are irrevocable. In other words, God has given you a gift for a task, but you are actually free to use that gift for his purposes or your own. You're free to make that choice. And if you choose to use them for your own purposes, God doesn't take the gift away. That's why we still have amazing bands that make amazing music that aren't believers. Because God gifted them to make music for him, but they're free to make the choice of how they use that gift. So I want to let you know when you see somebody that is gifted, it's not a commentary on their walk with Jesus. It's not. It's a commentary on their giftedness and how hard they're working to use it. You only know if someone's walking with God by getting to know them as a person, getting to know them as a person. So Paul says, the gift was given to me by the grace of God, not because I deserved it. And the effective working, so the good things that come out of me using my gift is the result of his power, is what he says. It's his power. It's his power. And I like to say it this way when it comes to all ministries, whether it's working with kids, whether it's ushering, whether it's leading a growth group. I want everybody in this room 
Let's make this your one big take home today. Really understand this. You are not called because you're qualified. You're qualified because you're called. You're not called because you're qualified. God didn't look down and say, man, you're just super. That's why I want to use you. God qualified you the second he called you. What that means is if God says you can do it, you can do it. That's the only qualification you need. God called you to do it. You're qualified because you're called. The truth is none of us are qualified to represent Jesus. I mean, none of us are qualified to represent Jesus. I think he could do a lot better than us. He could do a lot better. But Jesus says, no, I'm going to use you to represent me. Logically, that doesn't even make sense. It doesn't even make sense. But we're qualified because he called us. He said, I know you're going to mess up. But I still called you anyway. I knew every mess up you were going to make before I even called you. And I called you anyway. You're qualified because I called you to do this. And we're going to work on the rest over the course of your life. So if you have a a hunger to do ministry, if you have a, a hunger to be used by God, but you feel like you're not qualified, you feel like you're not qualified, I want you to know you are qualified wherever you are in your walk with God. If you've been walking with him for years, if you're still trying to figure out who this Jesus guy is, God can still use you. He can still use you. And if you've been holding back at all because you don't feel like there's a way God can use you, don't hold back anymore. Just check. There's a box on the back of your card that just says, I want to serve. If you do that, we'll get in touch with you this week. We'll talk. We'll find out where God's gifted you, and we'll get you serving there so that God can use you to impact the lives of other people because God can use every single one of us. That's how he's built the church to work. I want to let you know I take so much encouragement, so much encouragement from what Paul says about ministry because we're starting out as a church. We're starting out. And I'm firmly in that place of weekly experiencing the fact that we we just can't do everything we want to do. Can't do everything we want to do. We're still at the stage where Sunday morning the worship team, we finish setting up about five minutes before we kick off the service. And it's just nowhere near where I want it to be, what I can see in my head. And so what I'm working through is this process of God in our own life, in our own church, saying, listen, it's the working of my power. It's the working of my power. And so whether we have a beautiful environment where we got nice vases and fake flowers and all the fake foliage that churches are supposed to have, God knows why, but um, we're supposed to have tons of fake foliage, then we'd be more credible. So uh, even though we don't have any of those things, what God has been reminding us of is, listen, it's the working of his power through us. And God's power and God's presence resides with his people whenever they get together in his name. And so that's become our prayer is, God, if there's one thing we want, it's you. It's your presence. It's your power when we get together. And we can have that wherever we are. Even when we don't have a perfect sound mix, we don't have a perfect environment, we don't have enough people to meet all the service positions yet, but we can have God's presence. We can have his power. And we've made our foremost concern Jesus Christ and seeing Jesus Christ revealed. That's the only reason we exist as a church is to reveal Jesus and see Jesus revealed in each other's lives. That's what we want to see. That's the best thing we have to offer the world and each other is Jesus. So I want to encourage you, if you're interested in more of Jesus, if that's what you want, this is where you need to be. That's what we're all about is more of Jesus. And we want you to be a part of that. In Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 18, it says this. Many of you know this. It's talking about the church as a body. It says, but now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And on unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body having given greater honor to that part which lacks it. That there should be no schism in the body 
but that the members should all have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. What I love about this is it says that the parts of the church body that are there, God put them there. God put them there. God put them there. God put us all together. So we might look around and be like, I wish there was more people like me. I wish there was more of this and that. And I read this and I'm reminded, no, God brings a group of people together. And some of the testimony of the church is saying, listen, we would not be hanging out for any other reason than that we have Jesus in common. But having Jesus in common is the greatest thing you can have in common with another person. It supersedes all other cultural and sociological differences. We have Jesus in common. And there's a place in the body for every person. Whether you feel you are highly presentable or highly unpresentable, there's a place for you to serve. There's a place for you to be a part of the body. And we're incomplete without you. This is the way I like to say it to people is I might say, you might be thinking, I don't feel like I got anything to contribute. I feel like I'm a left butt cheek. (laughs) But I want to let you know You can't sit down without your left butt cheek. So everything in the body serves a purpose. And what Paul is saying, he's literally saying, he's saying, you know those parts you don't like to talk about in the body? That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, have you noticed how much you need those parts in order for the body to work? So Paul is saying, don't focus on just saying, you know what, we need more pretty faces. Paul's saying, no, there's a whole lot more to the body than that. And the parts that you don't like to talk about, man, they have a purpose and they are needed. Even the crazy ones, they're needed. There's a place for them, you know. So, and he even says in there, he says, now the crazy ones, you might find a very special place for them to surf, you know. They might be a part of your torso, which you have five layers over, but there's still a need for that part of the body. There's a place for everybody to be used in the body. So I want you to know God has a place for you to be used. He has a place for you to be used. And that's one of the benefits of us living in the dispensation of grace. You don't have to be perfect to be used by God. You don't have to be sinless to be used by God. You can be used by God because we are living in the dispensation of grace. And we're all called to ministry. 